Well, good evening, friends. My, my name is JT, and I serve as one of the pastors here. Let me welcome you and uh, give you a Merry Christmas Eve as well. Um, it's wonderful to gather together uh, to remember the birth of our Savior. Uh, we had a number of songs, a number of readings. Um, maybe you're feeling like one of my sons is, who came up to me literally right before I came up here and said, Hey, Dad, how long is your sermon going to be? <laughs> I said, don't worry, we'll wrap it up in about an hour. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But friends, we have, uh, we've read a number of wonderful passages where we've looked at this message throughout the pages of Scripture that there's this promised one that is going to come. And we know this promise wasn't uh, a small promise, wasn't even a short-lived promise, it was a very long promise, promised all the way from the book of Genesis and throughout multiple other passages throughout the pages of Scripture. Some of those we got to look at this evening. And now, if I can just point us to what was actually our fourth reading, and uh, Pastor Timo preached on the first section of this passage this morning, and we're going to talk about the second section of it this evening. It's Matthew chapter 1. If you have your Bibles or a Bible app or something like that, open up to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 18 through 25. Throughout this Advent series, we have our, our topic, our focus, we've, we focused on this theme of God with us. But this evening, for just a few moments, I want to invite you to ask a different question. And that's the question of how. We've talked for all these weeks that God is with us, but tonight I want to ask the question, how? How is God with us? Our story this evening that we're digging into begins to show us the answer to that very question. So we're going to look at two areas. We're going to have two really points that are going to guide our time. First, we're going to look at how is God with Joseph. And finally, we're going to look at how is God with us. But first, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this evening together. Lord, I know there are many things on our minds. Maybe it's finishing wrapping wrapping up presents. Maybe it's recipes that we have to finish up this evening, looking forward to tomorrow, looking forward to maybe travel with family or friends. Lord, there's lots of things that are on our mind. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would silence those things just for this brief moment. And Lord, by the power of your spirit, that you would speak to us through your word. Father, you would remind us of who Jesus is, of the great plan that you gave him, that he fulfilled for us. Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I love studying history. Whether it's church history, worldwide global history, American history, fill in the blank, I love studying history. Whenever I go to another country, I love digging into a little bit of what their history is. Timo and I got to go to Chile recently, and I love just digging into Wikipedia and then letting the, letting the different links flow from there about all the different history of Chile, all the different dynamics of their background and what made them the people they are. Everything from the indigenous people, the Mapuche people, all the way up into the revolution and even recently everything that happened in 2019 and as they developed their new constitution. I love history. But something that I've found as I've studied history is some of the most beautiful traditions, some of the most impactful moments, some of the most just 
category-defining moments in a nation's history, in global history, often come from very meager, small, insignificant moments. People that step out into moments or situations or different things kind of provide themselves, and it, it comes always from insignificant means. And it's amazing to see what flows out from there. I came across one interesting story, if I can share it with you. The year was 1931. It was the Christmas season, and the place was Midtown, New York City. The U.S. was in the middle, if you remember 1931, the U.S. was in the middle of the worst financial crisis it had ever experienced, what we now simply refer to as the Great Depression. They didn't refer to it at that at that time, but now we call it just simply the Great Depression, where just over 25% of the total workforce was out of a job during this Christmas season, if you can just imagine that. Crazy. I think it was 25.9% or something. It was in the middle of this dark time that a group of Irish-American construction workers got an idea. They were fortunate, actually, because uh, they had a job working to construct a brand new building center right in the middle of town, right in Midtown. But they recognized how difficult life was for the majority of their neighbors, their friends, their family, uh, who, were, who were without stable work, who didn't know when their next paycheck was going to come, who, who wasn't going to be able to provide uh, presents, uh, let alone even provide food for that Christmas season. And so they had this idea. The workers pulled their money together and they bought a 20-foot balsam fir tree, which I guess was the biggest tree and the cheapest tree they could get for all the meager amount that they could pull together with their money. They bought this 20-foot balsam fir tree, and they raised the tree right up in front of the center they were working on building, and they even asked their families to help decorate the tree. And so the decorations included handmade strings of cranberries, garlands of paper, and even some tin cans. Yes, the city was New York City, and the center they were building, where the tree was raised, was Rockefeller Center, where for the past 92 years, the Rockefeller Christmas tree has been placed in the same spot to commemorate the Christmas season. No matter what situation, financial difficulty, war, disease, regardless of whatever crisis has presented itself in our nation's history at that time and that place, every year, the tree has been raised, and the star is lit at the top. It's a wonderful tradition, isn't it? From very meager beginnings for now 92 years. I don't know about you, but my family and I, we have some of our own Christmas traditions. We don't raise a 20-foot, what is it, balsam berm or some, some kind of Christmas tree. We don't do that. But we have plenty of our own traditions. I'm sure you have your own traditions, right? Uh, and as I've thought about it, we not only have our own traditions, we really have uh, very clear and precise plans about how we want to do Christmas. Is anybody else in this category? We have plans around our preparations for Christmas, everything from when we buy a Christmas tree, where we go, right? We need to make sure we have our Christmas tree up at this time. Then we have our lights displayed at this time right? And as my wife and I have developed these traditions, things that we thought were just one-year blips in time through our kids' minds now become these important traditions that we could never give up in our life, right? I remember one Christmas uh, season, we went and got this tree, and we just happened, we were hungry, so we went and got some donuts. And next year, we go to get the Christmas tree, and what do you think our kids were asking us? Well, what about the donuts, Right? But I found also that some of our traditions, we, we, ha we just kind of come upon, but other traditions that we have, we plan out really instinctively. 
Uh, we make sure that, okay, our Christmas Eve is going to go like this. Our Christmas day is going to go like this, whether it's waking up in the morning and having a certain type of meal, whether it's opening our Christmas presents a certain way, whether it's going to family and friends, whatever it may be, we often have all of these plans, all of these traditions, all of these things that we judge our Christmas season by and say, if it meets this mark, it's been a success. Maybe you have your own Christmas traditions. I personally can very often treat my Christmas season like I would a recipe on the back of a brownies box. Anybody like this? Turn over the brownie box and you have one cup, one half cup of sugar, two, eight tablespoons of butter, some cocoa, some eggs, some flour, put it all in there, bake it for however long, and I'm expecting brownies, right? And whenever things in my life don't go the way I planned, I usually get angry, especially whenever I follow the directions, especially when I did exactly what I was supposed to do. Whether it's something like illness, conflict in a family, didn't get the present I was wanting, fill in the blank. When something invades my Christmas season that I dislike, I'm unhappy. Maybe I'm alone in that, but I suspect not. Good Christmases are the things that meet those marks. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I can even look at my life like that. The good life is the life that goes, the, the, that goes according to my plans. The good life is the things that meet my, meet, meet my marks, whatever they may be, whether it be career, whether it be finances, whether it be vacations, fill in the blank. All of these things lead me to the question of, is this my plan or is this God's plan? Now, as we enter this story in Matthew chapter 1, we enter an incredibly intriguing story. There are technically three characters of the story. You have, of course, Jesus, right? You have Mary, of course. But actually, this passage here in chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, is one of the only passages in Scripture where we actually deal with the third less-known character, and that's the character of Joseph. Joseph, in this passage, we get to see what he's dealing with as everything is leading up to Christmas. We get to see what he experiences as the newborn child, this newborn king, this savior king comes into the fold. Look with me at verse 18. It begins, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Let's stop right there. So our story first begins with Mary and Joseph, this couple who are betrothed to one another. This is a biblical term. Right? It's actually an ancient term, but we see it throughout our Bibles, and it just means engaged. They're engaged to one another. There are some other social realities there, but large in part, it means that they are engaged to be married. Perhaps you remember your own time of engagement. Right? The way I remember our engagement uh, for Sarah and I was our engagement was filled with lots and lots of planning, making lots of plans, right? Whether it was planning our wedding, picking out a cake, doing a gift registry, figuring out who was actually going to be invited to our wedding, right? That was its own process. You know, we had in mind who we knew we wanted to invite, and apparently so did our parents, right? And so we began working through all of those avenues of who was going to come to this, this event. We were making plans of sending invites, making plans of what was going to be on the music list, all of these plans that we're making. All of this is exciting stuff because you're looking forward to the final day. You're looking forward to that wonderful time when you come together and you're brought together as husband and wife. And no doubt Mary and Joseph were in the same situation. 
No doubt they had courted, their families knew one another, and they were excited to be wed together as husband and wife, to be brought together. They were both faithful Jews, it seems like. No doubt they would have had a religious wedding. They love God, they followed God, and they're excited to honor God in their marriage together, in their wedding together. But everything changes for Joseph in an instant. It says then in verse 18, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Think what he must have thought when he received that news. This certainly complicates things, doesn't it? Can you imagine that conversation between Mary and Joseph? Can you imagine Mary sitting down with Joseph and explaining to him what was going on? What was the situation? Mary telling Joseph that she's pregnant. Joseph asking the very next question, how this could even be possible? They had, it seems like from the text of scripture, they had not known one another in a marital way. Mary, how could this be possible? I thought you loved me. I thought you cared for me. No doubt, Joseph's response, shock, disbelief, sadness, What do you mean you're pregnant? Even more, can you imagine Joseph's response to Mary's claim that it's not that she's been unfaithful, but that this is actually a work of the Holy Spirit? Can you imagine Joseph hearing that? Mary coming to him and saying, no, Joseph, it's not that I've been unfaithful. It's actually, this is a work. An angel came to me and told me these things, and this baby is actually from the Holy Spirit. Let's be honest. What was Joseph's response? Sure, right. I'd like to say I've heard that one before, but I've never heard that one before. That one definitely stretches the realities of what is possible, Mary. I have to believe that Joseph's response was something to the effect of, Mary, are you serious? You're really going to say that to me? Not only would Joseph be shocked, hurt, and insulted, but also he must even feel a little bit ridiculed. Like, Mary, I, I get it. Our, our love, our relationship isn't what I thought it was, but for you to make up a story like that, have you no respect for me at all? The story continues, though, to Joseph's response in verse 19. It says, And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. We're told here that Joseph has two qualities. First, let's talk about the the, the one that comes up first. It's that he is a just man. The word here is actually the word dikaios. It's it's, uh, basically another form of the word righteous, saying that he is a righteous man. Joseph knows the law, no doubt. And Deuteronomy 22, 23 through 24 is very clear. When people, male or female, usually both of them, are found in adultery, the punishment is swift and merciless. You can go read that on your own time. But there is a second option and a less used option, one that is less public, less gruesome, and it's in Deuteronomy 24.1. And usually it involves actually where a husband uh, or a wife, they just can't seem to get along. And it says this Deuteronomy 24.1, a husband can basically uh, give a certificate of divorce to his wife. 
It's the quiet option. But also in that option, it also is Joseph saying that, well, it's not just her, it's also me. And bringing some of it on himself, which no, which no doubt we know isn't the truth. But regardless, we see here that, that Joseph is, is a just man, but we also see that you understand why he would, he would choose the option he chose because the second thing he tells us is not only is that he is a just man, but also that he, 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 is, he is unwilling to put her to shame. And so he resolves to divorce her quietly. We see in this no doubt moment of shock, distaste, frustration, sadness from Joseph, Joseph could have gone one option, but he chooses not to. He's a just man. He, he needs to divorce her because of this, what he perceives as unfaithfulness. But also, he doesn't want to put her to public shame. So he resolves to divorce her quietly. We see what kind of man Joseph is here. And then verse 20 comes. It says, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Wow. This changes everything. Joseph is contemplating everything that must now take place, divorcing Mary. No, no, no doubt he is probably frustrated as he's contemplating all these things because everything, you, the, the, everything the Bible tells us about Joseph is positive. He seems to be a good man. He's a, he's a construction worker. He's a carpenter, works with his hands, blue-collar job. We know that him and Mary uh, didn't have a whole lot of money. Because later on in the Gospels, when they go to give their offering, they give what was the poor offering, which is two pigeons, right? He's trying to follow God, and his life is now devastated by this situation. But then God shows up, and the angel speaks to him exactly what Mary told him, telling him, don't have fear. Take Mary as your wife. As your wife. Everything that she has said is true. The child that is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you're going to call him Jesus, and he's going to save his people from their sins. God doesn't leave Joseph in his contemplation for very long. He sends him this angel to validate everything that Mary has told him, that the child in her womb is the promised Messiah. But then I'm always struck by this next verse. This next verse says this, all this took place say that again. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. If you're reading this story just as a story, some other book, some other narrative, some other work of fiction, then you may just fly by this and say, yeah, of course this had to happen. It had to connect with everything in the Old Testament. But when you put yourself in Joseph's shoes, I don't know about you, but I say, really? All of this had to take place. All of this had to take place. And he begins to beg the question, this is how God works. Joseph and Mary in this state of not having a lot of money, right, the story we even read here with, uh, earlier with one of the readings was about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Remember them? 
They were the parents of John the Baptist. And we're told that, that Elizabeth was barren. And so the fact that God would, would give her a child was an amazing testimony to God's power and strength. Mary is a virgin. Virgins can't have children. And yet, God is working. And over and over again, what we see from the testimony of Scripture is the way that we think life is supposed to go, the way that we think things are supposed to go in our life, whatever they may be, whatever things we have maybe created, both in our lives or our Christmas experience or whatever they may be, God often does things that disrupt all of that. God often does things that disrupt the way that we thought life was supposed to go. And I think I have to believe that what Joseph began to realize in that moment was that his story was a part of a greater story. His narrative was a part of a greater narrative. Namely, that God was sending Christ the Son to redeem his entire people. And I wonder how often I fall into the same situation. Maybe you're in the same boat. Maybe you can yes and amen to that. How often my frame, my view, my perspective is my life, my situation, my goals, my happiness. And perhaps the disruption in our life that we may think we need to just run away from is in fact the very grace of God to wake us up. The very hand of God, the very work of God in our life to help us see, to wake us up to something new to wake us up to the reality that our stories are a part of a bigger story. Our narratives are part of a bigger narrative. What I find so interesting about this passage also is Joseph's response. Joseph's response. Um, it's interesting because if you remember the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's parents, right? They struggle to believe what they're being told. Even Mary, when she first receives the angel to her, she struggles to believe. Joseph, it says this clearly in verses 24 through 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. What's interesting is outside of really one other small little section of Scripture, we hear nothing about Joseph. No more in the pages of Scripture do you, do you see his name even mentioned. But we see that when God speaks to him, he's obedient. He does what God commands. What I find so interesting about the story of Jesus, from his birth through his life and so on, <laughs> is how he so often disrupts whatever the norm is of the situation. He so often goes against what everyone thinks is going to happen and instead invades a situation. How inconvenient, as I was going through the text this week and other, other stories, how inconvenient Jesus' work often tends to be in the lives that he works in, right? He comes to Mary and Joseph, a virgin, to be betrothed, engaged, we know that Jesus, when he comes and calls his disciples, he goes to them and says, come and follow me. They're involved in trade. And he says, leave your nets, leave all those things. I'm gonna make you fishers of men. We know that Jesus is inconvenient in another, another, a number of other situations throughout the gospel stories. 
We know that uh, into the book of Acts, Jesus is inconvenient with the apostle Paul who becomes the, the greatest missionary the world has ever known. Paul is on his way to even kill Christians and Jesus shows up and says, what are you doing, Paul? Why are you persecuting me? How inconvenient Jesus is. It reminds me of what it means for God to be with us. What it really means. And we love saying the phrase, right? We've said it throughout this Advent season, God with us. It's a beautiful idea. It's true. Jesus was really born 2,000 plus years ago. He really did die and he really did, was raised from the grave. The Bible tells us that now he sits at the right hand of God the Father and that he will return again. All those things are true. But it reminds me that often God's work with us is often not how we had planned or not how we would think it to be. It's encouraging for me that Jesus Christ isn't an ingredient on the box of brownies. I don't know about you, but it is encouraging. He's not a token or a figurine to be taken out and used when needed, like in my nativity that we have at our house, right? Often we can treat Jesus like like that nativity scene at my home, right? We put him there. We say, Jesus, I I love you being around. Thanks for being in my home. Bless my home. Also, just kind of stay there, right? Don't get into my life too much. Don't disrupt things. Just kind of hang out. But again, we're reminded that Jesus isn't an ingredient on the box of brownies. He isn't a token. He's not a figurine. Jesus is Savior, King. And when he comes in the person of a baby, When Jesus takes on flesh and becomes that Christ child, we know that the story doesn't end there. That he continues on for 33 plus years, that he calls disciples to himself, 12 actually, one ends up betraying him, and he ends up dying on the cross for our sins, which is exactly what that angel told Joseph that Jesus was going to do. That he was gonna die for their sins, for your sins, and for my sins. Let me encourage you, friends. I don't know uh, what your Christmas season is like. I don't know what you have going on in your life. I don't know your relationship with this Jesus, this Savior King. But if you sense that Jesus is disrupting your life, if you sense that he is inconveniencing your life, even this Christmas season, if he's tugging on your heart in some way, maybe even to receive him for the first time, Maybe he's tugging on your heart for some other reason. Let me encourage you. Follow the pathway of Joseph. Lean in and listen to what God is saying to you. Lean in and listen to what Jesus is seeking to do in your life. Whether it be for the hundredth time or maybe even for the first time. Maybe even today is the day that you put your faith in him for the first time. Let me invite you to do that if you haven't already. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are with us. And we thank you that through Christ, you have made a way for our sins to be forgiven. Lord, um, we often have our plans for how life is meant to be. And Father, thank you for disrupting those. Thank you for waking us up to this greater story, this greater narrative, this greater way of life that is not governed by us, but is governed by King Jesus. So Father, we pray that you would do your work in our lives, that you would help us to be attentive to it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.